The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened calf have been butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. He asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise to you, Lord Christ. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So for the last several weeks, our gospel lessons have been these sayings of Jesus found in the context of his ongoing and seemingly escalating interactions with the religious establishment of Israel. They had been questioning his authority, and in response to their questions, he has told them successive parables about what the kingdom of God is like, and more pointedly, what their role in the coming of that kingdom or not has been. This evening, we're leaving behind the vineyard imagery, but we're moving, in a sense, deeper into the idea of God's goodness that the vineyard represents for us. This evening, I'd like us to consider the call, the contempt, and the clothes. As with our other parables, so here, the character of the Father is doing almost all of the action. Have you noticed this over the last several weeks? The father, the landlord, who, whatever the father character is, he's the one doing almost all the action. It is he who initiates over and over again toward his people. And in this case, there's a call that goes out. It's an invitation. And the call of the father is the call that Christ comes to declare in the incarnation. It's the call of repentance and faith because the kingdom of God has drawn near. One of the things that we've been trying to make clear over the last few weeks is that this call to repentance and faith is rooted in love and mercy. It is a call to return to life and joy, right? It's not about going to prison or getting your comeuppance. It's a call of mercy. As we can see in our parable this evening, the call is a call to come and party, to celebrate at the wedding feast the joy of the king's son. And I think here we need to do a little bit of synthesis from the last couple of weeks. If you've been here 
over the last two weeks, at least two weeks ago, we talked about the vineyard as the trysting place of God. This is the place where God comes and rendezvous with his people. It's the place of his love. It's where he woos his bride. And last week I said that repentance and faith can feel a lot like dying. The daily practice of repentance and faith that is the Christian life is like taking up our cross and denying ourselves. And so I think the question that's at least rattling around in my brain is, okay, so is God calling us to a place of celebration or a place of suffering? The answer is, in a sense, yes, both. God's call is a return to true life. But because we have grown so accustomed to death and destruction, because we have consistently tried to build meaning and life out of emptiness, the light of God's mercy can make it feel as if we are being burned alive. So even in a place of joy and celebration, there there can be a feeling of suffering and death, which I think explains why in some cases the call of the gospel is met with, if not a shrug, then violent contempt, as we saw in the parable. There were some who just sort of wandered off, and there were others who were so incensed by this call to come and celebrate that they beat the messengers and killed them. As we said last week, the call of the gospel, the call of faith and repentance, requires self-repudiation. It is a letting go of the illusion of autonomy. And for many people, as in the parable, there is a reaction of violence and contempt to this message that they are somehow contingent right? That they're somehow hinged on another being, that they don't have autonomous life in and of themselves. I think here's where those of us who are part of the church and have taken up the vocation of the church to continue the proclamation that in Christ the kingdom of God has drawn near. Here is where we can have an incredible sense of freedom and joy, even in the midst of a rapidly secularizing culture. Because the freedom is to trust that the Spirit is the one who brings illumination, right? We're not going to argue people into the kingdom. In fact, it's not an argument at all. It's just an invitation. They can take or leave as they will. It's the Spirit who brings illumination. It's the Spirit who brings life to our senses to, the, to experience the revelation of God. The Spirit is the one who gives ears so that we might hear and eyes so that we might see. Father Julian Caron, in in an essay he wrote in response to the Charlie Hebdo attacks in Paris, ends his essay with, with this sort of haunting question. Do we Christians still believe in the capacity of the faith we have received to attract those we encounter? And do we believe in the living fascination of its disarming beauty? Do we really trust that the call of God is an invitation to disarming beauty, to a place of life and joy. I would say to put on display this disarming beauty is to live a life shaped by a humble response to God's call. It's to move through life as a person who has been invited to the party of the year for the one simple reason that the host just loves you. You have no real reason to be there other than that he's invited you. That is the Christian life. You have been invited to the greatest party imaginable, and it's not so that you can somehow make the host feel better about himself, and so you have to be worried about not screwing everything up and calling attention to yourself. You're just there because he likes you. He loves you. But I think the rubber meets the road when the invitation to the party 
conflicts with our own plans. So the way that big events like a royal wedding would have happened way back when would be that a general invitation would be sent out, right? So, so the father in the parable says, go to those who are invited and tell them that the wedding feast is happening. So first, there's a big invitation that's sort of like a save the date, but without the date. It's just like, hey, this is going to happen. Get ready. And then when the wedding or the party is actually ready to happen, there would be this preparation call that would say, the party that you've been invited to is happening. And the immediate response of everyone would be to drop what we're doing and go to the party. The idea here in the parable is that at a certain level, just being alive means that you have already been invited by God to come and feast at his table in friendship. That's what it means to be a human being alive in the world. You've already been invited by God to come and feast at his table in friendship. And then in the incarnation, the party of God's kingdom has drawn near in Christ, and so the call, so to speak, has gone out. Now there's a date. Now there's something to do. But how many of us have paid no attention heading off to work or back to the farm instead. You see, to hold the call of God in contempt isn't just to react with violence, as some do. It's also in the thousand petty ways in which we ignore his constant invitation in favor of our own work and plans. We're still living as if we're not contingent, as if we have autonomy. We get to do whatever we want, and we're freer for it. For some of us, I think this is because we take ourselves too seriously. Whether it's out of a need to feel accomplished or comforted or in control, our plans, our work, our desires remain fully in the driver's seat of our lives, leaving the call of Jesus to come and party sounding like something frivolous, something that we'll get to when we have more free time. Free time. All time costs the same, by the way, everybody, just so we know, just so as we're living our lives There is no, like, this time costs more and this time is free. It's just all the same. And all of it is an invitation to Christ's party. Some of us take ourselves too seriously, but I think others of us are ignoring of God's calls because we don't take ourselves seriously enough. We've trivialized ourselves with our security blanket of distraction, and we've settled for entertainment rather than encounter. A real living encounter with the divine other. We've allowed ourselves to be kept small and imprisoned, unable to even imagine the freedom for which Christ has set us free. As that good Anglican C.S. Lewis famously wrote, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. We're like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Friends, you being alive means that God has already sent you the general invitation. Christ having come in the flesh means God has sent you the direct invitation to drop everything and come to the party, okay? And you have a choice to respond to the call. Here's a fun little thought experiment that you can try. Ask yourself these two questions. When's the last time I even wondered what the crucified and risen Christ is calling me to in my daily life? Like, when's the last time that one even sort of blipped on the radar as a thing to consider? And then two, how does being asked that very question make me feel? 
annoyed, guilty, frustrated, or afraid? If so, that's a sign that we're still not really hearing the call, right? I mean, remember, the call of the kingdom isn't a summons to a funeral. It's an invitation to a wedding. There's no guilt involved. If we're not sensing that joy, let us ask our Father who loves to give gifts to his children to give us the gift of the Spirit, the gift of an increasing desire for him. I have a hunch that out of anything we might pray for, he will be quick to answer that one, us asking for an increased desire for him. Don't respond to the call with contempt. Respond with joy. It's a call to come and feast. And this leads us to the clothes. This parable can almost give you whiplash, right, as it tosses us back and forth between judgment and indiscriminate grace. There's just these incredible happy moments, and then, whoa, hard left turn to some dark places. I mean, what is this business about the poor guy who didn't have the right outfit on and so gets tossed into the worst place imaginable? And then the story is just over. (laughs) I think the first thing we have to get lodged firmly in our imagination is that no one, literally no one, gets invited because they deserve to be invited. There is no one in the room who deserves to be in the room. The wedding hall will be filled with the bad and the good, but everyone is there for one reason only. It's because it pleased the king to invite them. That's it. The invitation of the system of the Father is absolutely bonkers. I mean, we can kind of conceive of throwing a party and inviting, you know, everybody, right? Like the people that we, you know, don't really want to invite. But we're doing it with keeping in mind, right, that there's this other group of people that we want to be impressed by the fact that we invited those people that none of us really want anything to do with, right? The invitation system of the Father is completely bonkers. If he had a bookkeeper, the man would be pulling his hair out. Because God is just like, I don't care. We're throwing a big party, and if people don't want to be here, we're going to make it even bigger. Go out to the streets and just start inviting all of the riffraff in here. All right? He just invites everyone out of his bountiful goodness, not because we'll make him look better or feel better about himself. God's having a great time. This is his party. He would love for us to be there. Right? We're all there only because he invited us. That is the baseline of the Christian life. Everyone who's there is there because of the Father's goodness. As it's been said, then, on the flip side, is there are none who are excluded but those who exclude themselves. It's all an act of grace, and there are none who are excluded except those who exclude themselves. So if the basis for being at the wedding feast is grace through and through, then what's the deal with the wedding clothes? shouldn't be too surprising that throughout the history of the church there have been a variety of interpretations as to what is meant by the wedding clothes that were so important for this one man. Luther was adamant that the wedding clothes represent faith, that it is only faith that is required entrance into the party, and it is only faith that keeps you there at the party. Calvin, following the church fathers, said that the wedding clothes are faith and good works which flow from faith and are rooted in God's mercy, right? So it's still not actually you earning your way in there. 
You're only there because God invited you in the first place. And then the, the good works, the wedding clothes that you're putting on are things that he is doing in you through the power of his spirit. And Augustine, I think, summed up this tension perfectly by saying that the wedding clothes represent love. The wedding clothes represent love, which is the call of the Christian life. It's what Christ came to give us the ability to do is to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves. So does this mean that we get into the wedding by grace but then stay there by our own efforts? No. Emphatically, no. We don't get in there by grace and then have to start working our tails off in order to stay. The wedding clothes required of the guests aren't things that the guests have to procure on their own. As Paul tells the Galatian church, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Baptism isn't a garment that you just own and you have to go work for and find. Baptism is a gift given by Christ to the church and to the church to new members. Right? The clothes are not a thing that you have to go and figure out. The clothes are Christ. You've been given him in your baptism. To be in Christ is to have been given everything that you need. It's grace from beginning to end. Now, the relationship between faith and love or faith and good works is one that has caused massive fracture in the church for going on 2,000 years now, which is a signal that it's a difficult relationship to tease out. I figured it out. Are you guys ready? Nope. Not going not gonna to figure out this particular juggernaut this evening, but I will say... At the very least, faith leads to rightly ordered love, which leads to faith, which leads to rightly ordered love. Did you catch this in our New Testament lesson this evening? Paul is commanding the Philippian church to think about things that are good and beautiful and true because they are in Christ, right? And the way that you remain in Christ is by training yourself through good works, which the Spirit is doing in you, to, to maintain the faith that God is truly good. And that's a lot harder than I think we give it credit for. Those who will stand condemned in the last day are those who will insist on denying the merciful goodness of God, which is to say those who refuse faith in Christ. The New Testament witness seems to at least suggest that we are capable of allowing our disordered loves to push us into places of unbelief, unfaith, where we are unable to trust that God is truly good and filled with mercy. This is partly why we are called to cultivate good works, to live in self-giving love for God and neighbor, because it is in doing so that we have faith engendered in us by the Spirit. If you couldn't quench the Spirit, the apostles wouldn't have told you not to, is what I'm saying. We seem to have this idea that faith is this super easy thing and works are these really difficult things over here, but I don't think that's really accurate to our lived experience because we are so entrenched in, in a mindset of death where anything that seems to suggest that we will be a servant of somebody else is the opposite of freedom, and that's just not how we were made. You were made to be in relationship with an infinite God. And that relationship is so asymmetrical, it's always grace on his part. 
As Father Robert Capon said, free grace, dying love, and unqualified acceptance might as well be a 15-foot crocodile the way that we respond to it. All our protestations to the contrary, we will sooner accept a God we will be fed to than one we will be fed by. This is, this is the sinful condition of the human heart. We will sooner accept a God that we would be fed to than one that we will be fed by. Not quenching the Spirit is about remaining in faith and trusting the good mercy and love of God. And that's, that's why we feast every week at the altar. To come again to the place of Christ's presence, the place of his mercy, or as our Old Testament lesson so beautifully said, that it is on this mountain that the Lord will prepare a rich feast of food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. On this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. In other words, he's good, and it's all mercy. Just trust him. Right? The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. And then this is our response, right? This is the response of faith, what it says there in Isaiah. In that day they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.